As you're coming in, if you would grab one of the red books over there, you can also grab a handout, but we are going to be using the books this time. Good to see you. Hello. We are not doing a service, but I will hopefully do a service for you. I don't know. We'll see. We are going to go into the book. We might just go to the dedic. We might go to the dedicatory page. Yeah. No, we said it starts without a book. So good evening and welcome if you have not yet had a chance to be here in person, and welcome back if you have been here before. I could sort of offer the recap saying that we started without a book and the idea not just of spontaneous prayer, but specifically personal prayer. And I painted with a broad brush, with very little gray area, in terms of saying that most communities, when they say, let's pray, they start praying. And in a Jewish community, when we say, let's pray, you reach for a book and say, what page are we on? But as I said, painted with a broad brush. And I don't think that everyone is that way. I actually think that there are a lot of people that do pray without a book. Jews. I don't think we talk about it much, those that do, though, because they're afraid that Others might think that they are not sophisticated or maybe a bit foolish or they're overly pietistic. And so it sort of gets just kept quiet. Might be a little bit about the similar vein to, do you believe in the afterlife? Not tonight's class. That could be another one, possibly. But the idea of moving back into the book is important because you want to get familiar with, with what's in the book because you're going to have it in your hand. You might be a regular attendee at your synagogue, hopefully this one. You might be ending up at a shiva minyan. You might be somewhere for a bar bat mitzvah. The book will be in your hand, and we might as well get as much out of that book as possible. We had the example last week of Rabbi... Uh, Zalman Shakter Shalomi, who talked about the idea of something which was sort of kind of dated, stale a little bit, and something which is fresh. And the metaphor was to the idea of maybe rote, unthinking prayer and the real deal, something that's really, really fresh. But Reb Zalman also coined the idea of freeze-dried prayer, the idea that the Siddur, the prayer book, is kind of like freeze-dried, dehydrated food. You know, we send up off into space for our astronauts. And in order to be nourished, we have to add something into it. We have to rehydrate it. We have to add the hot water, specifically the hot water of our heart and soul. 
we need to be willing to open our hearts and enter the page and find a way that we're not just sort of talking about the divine, but talking to the divine. And I don't think that this always has to be taking a prayer, which is the one that typically might come to mind, those of gratitude, finding that wonderful attitude of gratitude. But I think even the things that are despair and fury, those are also, as we talked about, the idea of really being true to what you are, really turning out what is within you. Sometimes that is uh, what's desperately needed, because our heart and spirit needs a full expression, and that is a part of the equation. Uh, the ones of old who left us with a lot of the prayers in this book, I think they did have a sense for what they were giving us. They understood that it wasn't finished, that it did have to have something put into it. They were distilling down ideas, they were putting it onto a page so that it could be passed along into future generations, and yet it was really just an essence, but it wasn't everything. I actually want to start with something which is not so much from the book, to try to give you a sense of what this might look like. It'll be familiar to you, I suspect. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 23rd Psalm, and it's a good one. Most of the time, we encounter it at a funeral. We've certainly seen it in plenty of movies at very specific situations, the condemned person or a funeral in the movie. And so the question is, who's the author? Traditionally, the Psalms are attributed to King David, but we know that we've got those that are attributed to Moses. We have some that are attributed to Asaph, 10 of them, in fact. But this one is specifically a song of David. And it comes from a scene. If we want to try and go backwards to where this was at its freshest, to when it was fully expressed and hydrated, as it were. So King David has a price on his head. King Saul is after him. King of the Philistines is also after him. He doesn't have a lot of friends. His brothers aren't extremely happy with him. He's the youngest, he's the runt, he's the one who now ends up sort of being crowned and picked, even though they all get bypassed. And where is he living? He's been anointed by Samuel, but he's not living in the palace. That's kind of a bummer when you're really destined to be the king. But he is the king. Now anointest my head with oil. And this business of the oil on the head, and you might think, well, this is kind of not so nice. It's sort of like leaving the shampoo in your hair and not rinsing it out. It's kind of sticky and it's, no, but the oil on your head means you are Moshiach. The Greek for that, by the way, is Christos, in case you were wondering. You're the anointed one. You are the one who has been oiled and are destined to be the king. So he's David, 
king, but not yet. Price on his head. Can't really make a living. He actually doesn't have a whole lot to eat. He's kind of struggling. He's got a band of people who are loyal to him. They're sort of hanging around with him, but he's sort of on the run. Imagine, I don't know if this is a little Butch Cassidy. He's in the valley, he's in the crags, and there's sort of one way in. And he knows that he's got to go back to his safe place. They're probably depending on him. He's also hungry. He's got to get some food. He remembers his shepherd days, and they weren't so long ago. And so perhaps he fills a skin with, with milk that he can bring, and he's coming back through the, the valley, through the pass. And he doesn't know what's lying ahead of him, so maybe he tosses something up in the air to sort of see if anybody's going to jump at it, see what's in front of him. But he really can't tell what's behind anything that he can't see. So he sort of feels like he's in trouble. And he's probably passed by a number of places where people turned him down for help. What, help you? I mean, we've got the king here, and I can't possibly help you. So he's probably feeling somewhat alone. Finally gets back, chats with the men. They look and see what he has, whatever he was able to scrounge up. He says, perhaps you have something that you've been cooking up, but we're all kind of hungry. And they sit around, and they, they eat what they have. They drink the milk, and all of a sudden, maybe they're happy. A little bit full, finally. Maybe David gets that look coming over his face. And everyone says, quick, quick, you know, get the lyre, get the harp. They've seen it before, where David maybe comes up with something. Something maybe on the spot. He's having food, he's enjoyed it. His enemies didn't really want him to have any. He didn't get to come straight back. He kind of had to take the circuitous route to get back to where he was. Maglate Sedek, by the way, can mean the circuitous circling paths. Thy rod and thy staff. Well, the Hebrew really means the rod with which you get whipped and the staff on which you lean for support. And it's as if David is saying, you know what? Both of these are essential for me. I need God to sort of threaten me with a whooping and basically say, hey, you're stepping out of line. I need that, but I also need to know that I can also rely on God. So he has this real-life experience coming through the ravine with all that is on his shoulders, and so he sings about it and talks about how life's been treating him. He's hoping that goodness and mercy is going to follow him all the days of his life. Actually, the word is pursue him all the days of his life. And there's a lot in that feeling you prepare a feast in the presence of mine enemies. It comes to life. And even though his enemies are trying to quash him, his cup runneth over. The Hebrew, by the way, is really that my, my cup is so quenching. Martin Luther translates, by the way, as my soul is quickened. It is satisfying. And time passes. The weeks go by. And all of a sudden, the guys say, hey, David, can you sing that song again for us? We'd love to hear it. And so he does his best. He sings it. And he sings it again. And after a while, it's been 10 times that he's sung this. It's still a wonderful song, but the feeling's shrinking a little bit. Fast forward, David is in Jerusalem. He's now the king. Doesn't have to play for his supper anymore. Now there are a couple of Levites that are around. 
and they're pretty good with the whole musical thing. And they've created a musical setting to this particular song and poem. And they're playing it. It's kind of popular. Maybe some people are singing it around the Shabbat table. It's popular with the kids. And eventually, years go by. And then maybe a scribe comes by, talks to some of the Levites and says, hey, you remember this song? One of them says, yeah, yeah, I do. I do remember that song. Well, do you think you could remember it so I could write it down? Sort of dictate it to me. And he does, and they get the words down on paper. But by this time now, this poem, this song, it's kind of it's flattened out a little bit. The melody is gone. The feeling is kind of there. But the words are there, at least. Well, most of them. Because you see, the words are really purely consonantal. They're not vocalized. There's none of the cantillation which you might have sung it with. There's none of the vowels. So it's not really. Plus, it's meant to be music. And music isn't really music until you perform it. And not only that, but even if you say this is music, it's got to be performed. It's like a score. You only got one instrument. And that's the voice. And that's all that you can do. Maybe it's kind of like finding the symphony and at least part of it, and all you have is the lines for the tuba. And every synagogue is a little bit like that when they come to the pages of the book. They have something which has been placed on the paper, but it is a far cry from what it was in the beginning. And the question is how to bridge. And I don't think you can bridge back to the very original. That original has been lost to us. And so maybe it's up to us to rehydrate it in a way that we see ourselves and our own experience in it. And that's for tonight, to see how we can take certain things. And I was really trying to figure out what are the ones that we are going to have in our book that we're going to come to frequently enough. So I decided not too early in the book. I mean, we'd love to have you there at the start of the service. We would, we would. But we'll pick things that get the most bang for our buck. I'd like to take a look at some of the sources that are on that sheet. And I want to start with the one that's by Rabbi Tears of Firestone. So that's the front page, the second from the bottom. Find a prayer that really opens your heart. It may be just one line from a prayer, and give yourself permission to dwell on that prayer. Don't feel like volume is so important. Feel like depth is important. It's not getting through the prayer book. It's not even getting through the prayer. You're looking for the words that are going to spring the hatch on your heart. We have to give ourselves some permission to say it's a big book, and there's lots, uh, lots in it. I think that it's... It's a book that has grown over the years. It's kind of like getting more and more articles of clothing and you never throw anything out. It should be like my wife, the professional organizer, and her rule. One comes in, one goes out. And then we'd have a one-hour service. But it didn't work that way. And so maybe we can say, I don't need to get through all of this. Maybe not even through all of one. And let's turned the, to the bottom one. Let's look at the Rabbi Naomi Levy, but the bottom one, not the very top one. 
There's a need to improvise in a personal way, to experience God and faith from your own perspective, and to express that in some way. And there's a strong need to connect on a communal level. That moment of connection when the individual story and the communal story fit together is such a blessing. When the individual instrument connects up with the orchestra, prayer is a living experience. That combination of all of us in the room with a shared text is an extraordinary texture that happens. From the people in the pews, there are going to be some that are like the football players that we sometimes see, right? Praying for score a touchdown, maybe believing that they're going to be able to steer the ball into their hands. And yet you also have people who are going to be non-theists, don't take a stand, people who are agnostics, people who are atheists. And yet we're going to have these communal blessings that they say, they're going to talk about our history, and a fixed liturgy allows all of us to be in the room together, even though we are coming from very, very different places. I, I think that so much about this is about sparking memory which is why, don't let me later, don't let me forget about the shrinky dinks, because that's, that's an important piece of this. I thought, let's start on page 106 of our book. And I think there's something there that is familiar enough to us and gives us a good place to start. So 106. Aha, it's even in bold. Look at that. And on the left-hand side, you have it in the first line of the red transliteration. It's the hero Israel. Adonai is our God. Adonai is one. It's the Shema. So what are the associations that you have with the Shema? Either you have or you think that people generally probably have with the Shema. Any associations at all? Throw them out there. Holler them out. The end is coming and... Before the end comes, you always hear it. You want it to be the last line, right. okay? Uh, Jews all over the world have been champions. Yes, so one of them is the end is coming. I assume you're meaning that the last thing you're supposed to say out of your mouth before you die are the words right. of the Shema. Um, the other one is that world, all, all the world over, this is a common line to everybody. Right. Right, and Richard was sort of talking to me last week about those things that are sort of horizontal and vertical, and the Shema is very much one of those. If we think about its words, right, Shema Yisrael, and Yisrael's not the country. Think of it as the children of Israel, the people of Israel, Am Yisrael, so it's us. And in a way, that's sort of that horizontal, but at the same time, we know it's been going through the generations, and that's the vertical. What else about the Shema? Yeah. For sure. Right? So we've got the end and we got the beginning. I think of my grandchildren who say it every night before they go to sleep. How did they learn it? Because, I mean, if, did they start saying it just one day no, sui generis? So until they're old enough, you might have a parent that's 
chanting it, singing it, saying it, until that child might be old enough to say it themselves. Okay. Yep. Triggers the memories of the generations before us. This idea of a foundational dogmatic statement that says there is one God and it is our God, Eloheinu, our God. So it's uh, so very formative times. You know, certainly at, uh, when we're when we're in those adolescent years, growing up. Uh, I know it's also an important time, often for those who are choosing to become Jewish. In that process, there's also a point in the conversion process where they will make that declarative statement. It's also got choreography. Yes, it does have choreography. Right, the covering of the eyes. And for those that grew up in a reform environment, there's another choreography. Everyone stands, right? So we have that as well. Any other ones? That was a lot. It was terrific. Yeah. It gives you rules to follow and what you should do and where you can find it. All of that is built in, despite it being six words, right? And that's all it is. You, you can't render it in English in six words, really. It always makes me feel like this is my time for personal reflection. And I think this is an ideal segue, right? It allows us to step into that line, and yet at the very moment that you're stepping in in a personal way to that line, how is it being said? Together, it's out loud. Many synagogues have that prayer mumble going on. A little bit less outside of the Orthodox synagogues, but not always the case. But it can really be this mumble of words. You can't quite tell what it is. Even the silent Amidah isn't supposed to really be silent. You should be almost able to hear your voice saying it a little bit. And that's fascinating that in these times where it can be a very personal moment, it's also a very, very public moment. And I've often wondered about that, right? I've often thought whether because of that earliest part of our brain, maybe that reptilian brain, that when we're saying it out loud, there is sort of no difference between you know, saying it out there and us. There is no difference between us out there and here. I'm not sure who we're talking to. It could be that we're reminding ourselves. I don't know if we're reminding the people that are next to us, or if we are saying, I say this individually, but I stand with everybody. But as we say it, we're not just saying it, we're also hearing it. And somebody might be a step ahead, somebody might be a step behind, and you're feeling that sense of connection. Maybe let's just take a look at the text by Miriam Fagelson. Second one from the top of the front page. She says, the Siddur invites me to stand with a millennium of Jews who have been praying these words as I utter them today. I aspire when opening a Siddur to be able to hear these generations of daveners, praying people, davening, praying with me. My personal prayer carries my voice. 
The Siddur carries my voice as it stands in the midst of my ancestors. So she says what you've said. Shema, variety of meanings. Hear, understand, listen. Yisrael could be the us now. It could be the us through time. The tetragrammaton, and I like how the Siddur has it where there's no vocalization on it. The four letters stand out very differently for God's holiest name. Eloheinu, our God. So Hashem, Adonai, is our God. And then it says Adonai Echad. English here being Adonai is one. What does that one mean? And again, I know that this is sort of an intellectual sort of exercise, but I really don't mean it like this. We are going to use our minds, but this is our chance to sort of drop our own individual heart imprint onto this. And you can say things that are completely contrary, because each time you say the Shema, you're a different person. So what does one mean? Or what does Echad mean, if it's not just one? One God. It can be that idea maybe of the, of the monotheistic decree. What else can Echad mean? So it could be as a statement against the others in its time. But of course, we're saying it now. And I like to think that as Jews, text is so important to us. And we have to know what a text meant in its time. I'm an originalist. He's an originalist. He's like the Supreme Court. He's going back to its original. But at the same time, you are saying it. And I think that a text has to have the meaning in its own time, potentially the meaning over time, and then you have to come to that final piece, which was, what does it mean to me? Because I don't think it's enough just to have the other two, but you have to have that one. To quote Billy Crystal, one is what that one is to you. Okay. And, and that one is whatever you choose that one thing to be, or that one is. So I'm, I'm curious at getting out what might those possibilities be, and I'm not gonna hold you if you say it, for it being your opinion. It could just be you're throwing out some interpretations of what we might understand when we say this word, echad. Yeah? Okay, so we often think about, oh, it's, it's like the, the Buddhist who goes up to the hot dog cart, says, make me one with everything. <laughs> no, so the idea of this oneness, and I think that it very much can be. And the idea of that single God that is apart from us, that dualistic idea, there's also a Hasidic idea, a mystical idea that actually it's not so removed from us. There is a one, and some take it in different directions. And we touched on this a little bit last time, that God is pretty much everything. And it might even be that God is us that we are created in God's image, and so in our image we create God, except that it's this closed loop. Maybe there is nothing 
and we think we see ourselves as separate, but maybe we really aren't. That the oneness even could extend to subsume ourselves. How about this? Fill in the blank from the song. One is what number? One is the loneliest number. What if you were to say, on certain days, that God is lonely? And what might that mean? Is God lonely because of something that we've done or failed to do? Or is God lonely just because it's our human way of understanding that maybe it's tough when there's nothing like you? Of course, sometimes we say that something is so individual that it's one of a kind. Maybe it's unique. Maybe one is a sense of continuity, one throughout time. This line, we often sort of just sort of jump into. I often spend a little bit of time on this because many synagogues say the Shema and then they go right into the chanting of the big paragraph after, the Viahavta which is chanted, and it's rhythmic, and it's kind of slow. And so I say, oh, I get a little extra time here, because people are going to do this out loud, and so I can focus a little more on that. How many words were there? There were six. What about if you were to think of this in terms of the directions? How many directions are there? Think Lulav. Up, down, you get the four compass points, the up, down. There's six. And what if you were to allow your mind to sort of extend itself out as you're reciting each of these words? If you were to take them and give a focus, and in some ways, right, it gets you back to the horizontal and to the vertical, if you want to think of it that way, because you're going all around you, all the people that are here, and up and down. It's not just a who's coming after me, but who's above. It could also be that God is in all of these directions, or you might say, all of us, we need to know that we're somehow bringing God down to here. And again, these are all, they, they don't necessarily mesh together, but they can all be part of how you're going to turn this into some sort of an experience for yourself. The idea that maybe God is one, unified, not made of parts. Everything else we know is pretty much made up of parts, but maybe God is not made of parts because God's not a, a thing. Rabbi Art Green talks about something which gets to a little bit of what we've said and is going to potentially let me take us into a whole different area. He says, the core of our worship namely the Shema, is not a prayer at all. It's a cry. It's not on our sheets. I know. The core of our prayer is not a prayer at all, but a cry to our fellow Jews and fellow humans. In it, we declare that God is one, which is also to say that humanity is one, that life is one, that joys and sufferings are all one. For God is the force that binds them all together, there is nothing obvious about this truth, for life as we experience it seems infinitely fragmented. Human beings seem isolated from one another, divided by all the fears and hatreds 
that make up human history. Even within a single life, one moment feels cut off from the next. Memories of joy and fullness offering us little consolation when we are depressed or lonely. To assert that all is one in God is our supreme act of faith. No wonder that the Shema, the first prayer we learn in childhood, is also the last thing that we say before we die. This idea that our prayer is to bring us to a recognition that all is one. This is where we get to the not-so-nicely typed-up notes, but I was just on a ramble, and yet it ties in with this, and I want to share it. We're often not as open as we could be, as I've mentioned in the first class especially. We don't walk around awake enough, not as joyous as we could be, not always as fulfilled as we could be. The Baal Shem Tov tells the story of the king who is in the castle and there are walls that surround and people are trying to make their way to get to the king. And there's two versions actually of this story. One of them is that the walls are actually an illusion. They don't exist. Some people give up, some persevere, which wasn't really the Baal Shem Tov's version. It was a version that comes from Hasidut, from that tradition. But the Baal Shem Tov said, we thought these walls were something other than God, but the walls were already God. Even what felt like barriers or walls were difficulties. They were already the divine waiting to be explained and open. As if to say we can only discern what our path is supposed to be by confronting the walls. And that that's something that is perhaps what's intended for us. Often we're feeling sort of cut off, maybe a little bit dampened or muffled. Not all of our moments are kind of high definition. And so sometimes in that state, we find ourselves trying to, I don't know, confront them with different things. We fill our time, fill ourselves with judgment or with television or with food or obsessive thoughts. And we pile a bunch of, of, of garbage on top of our soul that sort of covers it up. We tell ourselves, if only I had something, a little more time, different family, different job, if I could win the lottery, if I could get different friends, and then all of a sudden, that sense of isolation just continues. But life is often made up of sort of these two things, right? We've well, it's really three things. You got those things that are sort of pleasant, and we really like those. And we say, I want to hang on to this. I want more of this. I don't want this to end. This is good. And yet, even when we're feeling that happiness and that joy at one of these pleasant moments, the bittersweet feeling is starting to creep in, namely, but yeah, this is going to pass. It's going away. And I'm filled with that tension. As much as I'm enjoying this, I know that it's got a shelf life. Because I know the reality that good things go. And then we have the things that are unpleasant. 
that we truly don't want. Maybe it's a person we're having trouble with. Maybe it's our boss. Maybe it's the dentist. Maybe it's a physical issue that we're feeling within our own bodies. Maybe it's some emotional experience. But we feel some sense of unpleasantness, suffering, and we want to run from it. We want to get away from that. And then, there's, of course, there is the third choice. It's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It's just sort of parv, in the middle, boring. And it's hard to think about things like that. You might think, well, who, who, do, who do I know that really doesn't fall into, I know I like that, I don't like that, but actually I think the bulk of life is probably that which lies in the middle. And that's also part of our experience. And maybe we have to say this is sort of this incredible continuum, sort of like what Rabbi Art Green said, that it is all one, and that they're all interconnected, And of course, it reminds me of a story, because I do like stories. The story of King Solomon, who says, I have this trusted advisor, Benayah ben Yehoyada, and he is such a good advisor. He's always, always helping me out. But the problem is, I've heard that he's a little bit of a braggart about it. And he tells everybody, you know what, I, I just come up with the best solutions for King Solomon. I can always solve his problems. So King Solomon decides, I'm going to fix this guy. He's my friend, but listen, he just needs a little comeuppance, a little bit of a lesson. And so in front of all the other ministers and advisors, he says, look, Pesach just ended. So you got about a half a year, but I need something. And I think you're the only person who can get this for me. Tell me, Benaiah says to the king, well, it's this ring. And I just, I know I have to have it. Tell me about it. I'll get it for you. Special ring. It's a ring that when I put it on, if I'm feeling elated, overjoyed, it'll bring me back down to earth. It'll center me and calm me. But if I'm feeling in the depths of despair and I'm suffering, it'll lift me up, raising me back to where I need to be. No problem, Your Majesty, I'll go get the ring. And off he goes on his travels. But it doesn't take long before he's checked out every jewelry shop in Jerusalem and he is struck out. He extends his search. He's going to all the various places around the land of Israel, not having any luck. And the weeks are going by, and the months are going by, and now he's flagging down every ship captain who's coming into the port saying, have you heard? Did you ever see? And all of a sudden, he's realizing, I think I need to extend my own search, and I have to go looking myself. And so he boards a boat, and he starts traveling. But now, the months are ticking by. He's getting closer to Sukkot when he's supposed to show his face again at the palace. And he's found nothing. No ring that will bring someone up from despair or take them down from elation. It's a couple of days away. He ends up back in Jerusalem. It's the day before. He's been walking around all night, cannot sleep. And all of a sudden he sees... One person setting up the wares of their shop, and it's a little boy. He's putting out the carpet and putting out some jewelry. He walks over and he says, do you know of, of a ring that can lift someone from the depths of despair and bring them down from when they're too, too happy? 
little boy's listening and starts to shake his head when all of a sudden a wrinkled arm comes out from behind the curtain in the shop behind and motions for the boy to come in. The boy comes running out a second later and says, yes, yes, I can definitely help you. Just wait right here one moment. And the boy is gone for no more than about 10 minutes. And he comes out with a gold band. And he holds it out to Benaiah, who looks at it and smiles and says, you've solved my problem. And he pays the price that they ask. He would pay to anything at that point. He shows up at the palace. Everyone's been assembled so that they can witness the bringing of Benaiah ben Yehoiada down. And the king says, so have you found my ring? Yes, your majesty, I have. And everybody else who's in on the challenge, in on the joke, is a little quizzical. And he walks forward and bows to the king and he presents the ring. And the king looks at it and sees inscribed on the inside, it says, Gamze Ya'avur, this too shall pass. And the king understands that once again Benaiah has solved his problem. He has brought his wisdom to the task. And he says, yes, you have shown me that there is a solution to the problem that I thought. He puts the ring on his own hand, having removed his red ruby signet ring, which he then gives to Benaiah, who remained his faithful servant. I've loved telling that story for years, but now, as I've thought more and more about the Shema and this notion of oneness and what a continuum of life looks like, it makes me realize that, yes, all of these things are going to pass, but they are, in many ways, connected. It's, it's not even an ebb and a flow. There's really a strong connection to all of these, and each informs the next and allows us to live with the next. And that is the oneness of life. I try to find myself sometimes looking at different words as I look at this, but I come to this pretty often, and so will you in terms of the Shema. We're going to definitely take a look at some other things because we don't want to use up all of our time. Um, by the way, one more thing about the Shema, of course, this was the one of uh, Rabbi Yitzchak Halevi Herzog, who was the first chief Ashkenazi rabbi of Israel, and it was 1946 when he was given the mandate to go on a six-week tour trying to find Jewish children who had been uh, secretly placed with Christian orphanages and families, trying to bring them back to Israel to reclaim them. And Two stories are told, one where he is at a monastery and the Reverend Mother says, there's no way, how are you going to be able to tell who is and who isn't? I mean, he said, just assemble them all in the auditorium and he climbs up onto the stage and he chants the Shema and all these children just start going, Mama, Papa, and they start moving towards the front and he realizes that this was something that they had had at an early age. Another story has him telling it at another place where somebody wasn't so open and hospitable, and said, you have 60 seconds, do what you can. And he does the same thing. And they say that he was able, through his time, to bring almost 10,000 back to uh, the state of Israel. I want us to turn to another one, because to me, having a little bit of, an, of a quiver full of things you can draw on is always the best idea. So I want you to take a look for, uh, I didn't write the page number for this one, lucky me, but it is Michamocha. Leading, come at, leading into the Amidah, we're playing, it can be either one, 
Oh, I, I, I was just there. Look at that. Oh, no, 145 is close. That's Nishmat. I, I was going to do Nishmat, too, because I love Nishmat. We're getting there. It's at 158, 150. It might be 158. Ding, ding, ding. 158. Nichamocha ba'ili Madonai. Who is like you, Adonai, among the other gods? And it's in bold, and it's in the red on page 158 in the English saying, who is like you, Adonai, among the mighty, who is like you, adorned in holiness, revered in praise, working wonders. And this is the part that is about to lead us into the blessing that closes the blessings of the Shema, leads us into the Amidah, a blessing that talks about Ga'al Yisrael, the one who rescued the people of Israel. It talks about the edge of the sea, namely the Sea of Reeds, so this is the splitting of the sea. It is a line from a poem. It is a sentence out of the Torah. It is something that we say morning and evening. So the question is, do we just want to go ahead and sing it when everyone starts singing it? Maybe. But because sometimes the melodies are very familiar, it's easy to sing along and think at the same time. But if you wonder, why do we have all of these references to Egypt? They're throughout this book. They make their way into the, the Kiddush, the sanctification of the day set over wine or grape juice, which we'll do tomorrow night. Zecher Litziat Mitzrayim, a remembrance of the exodus from Egypt. We have Shirat Hayam, the song of the sea, Az Yashir Moshe. We're getting to Egypt all the time in this book. I just happen to like this one. And the question is, What's going on with all of these particular Egypt moments? And I want to suggest that we've got to remember who we are. We have to remember our servitude. And that doesn't mean we were slaves in Egypt and God freed us. It has to keep fresh in our minds the idea that we are going to be tied down by certain things in our own lives and we're going to see it in those that we know, those that we love. And it's a reminder, perhaps, to us to not forget that there are things that we feel trap us and from which we may yet escape or from which we have escaped and we need to celebrate. It's the notion of slavery really as a category, like a narrative that helps us encounter those moments within ourselves. And I would suggest that when you come to this, you can be thinking about a place that works for you. Where are the tight spaces of your life where you have felt trapped? It doesn't have to be the huge addictions that require interventions in 12 steps, though it can certainly cover that. But maybe we all have our lowercase a addictions. And I think it's one that you don't need to overthink. You don't have to over-intellectualize it. But it can't just be that we're harping on the past and always going back. Yes, it was a tremendously large moment in our people's history, and we wouldn't be here but for that redemption out of Egypt. But as I said, a text always has to have its meaning in its own time. But where does that meaning land for you? Who is like you, God? Who, 
Who is going to be the one that supports me as I try to make my way through this challenging place? Mitzrayim, from the word sar, from the word narrow. I got to get through this narrow place, this constraint that I feel, what's pressing on me. It doesn't have to be enormous, and yet it might be. I will also say, some of you might know this about me, I really like music. So I spend my time, not lots of time, I don't go down rabbit holes, but I try to find music that will echo in my mind even when I'm not hearing it. I might listen to it at a variety of times. And I'm just going to give you a couple of micha mochas. Not to say, oh, this has to be your micha mocha. But they're very, very different. Meaning, what would this micha mocha look like for you? Would it be relief? Would it be awe-inspiring? Would it be something to rejoice over? I'll start with the rejoicing. And these are all snippets. This is 60 seconds. Nefesh Mountain, Jewish bluegrass. This is their Micha Mocha. celebratory, and sometimes I will get myself feeling that way. Not every time. I don't want you to think that this is a can't-miss kind of a thing, but the more, the more that you have to drop onto the scale at different times, the more that that word on the page can puff up into something more. The other one is I'm not always feeling the celebratory like that. I'm feeling the awe-inspiring. So this one is Ilana Arian. And again, just a snippet. And if you could just hear how it transforms later, this is the beginning part. Who is like you? I don't
And it goes on. Did, you, did anyone hear the tambourine in there? So anyone want to guess what I'm thinking about? What if I say timbrel? Miriam's timbrel. All right. Which I know it's a little corny. I get that. But at the same time, now all of a sudden I'm having something which is conjured up in my head from long ago, but I'm also saying, you know what? Everybody gets their redemption. It may come at a different time. You might have had many a redemption and you might not have honored it in the moment. But maybe you just need your Micha Mocha moment. I don't know. All right. We're going to jump. Oh, well, I should explain the, the, the shrinky dink, honestly. So it's, does anybody not know what a shrinky dink is? Shrinky dink is a piece of plastic and you can draw on it and then you bake it. And what happens? It shrinks down. Sometimes you have a inkling of what's on it, but sometimes you just see the faint outlines. You can't really read it anymore, but you know what you put on there. What I strive for is to create prayers that are like shrinky dinks. Or if that doesn't work for you, I'll give you one. There is that smell, that perfume, that flower, that when you smell it, you are somewhere else. You are brought back to a moment, to a time in your life, to an experience. And if it's not olfactory, it's, it's a flavor that you taste. Or there is a piece of music. There's a sensation. But we have these moments that just, all we need is a hint of it and in the back of our mind, it explodes into the fuller version. That's what I'm hoping for with this. There's going to be a bunch on the page. You can't escape the volume of words that are in this book. I don't care if you know all the words. I want you to know one or two that jump off that page. And that's the moment where you say, I remember. Maybe you do this with one other person and you now have your shared moment. Or maybe you say, I'm going to think about this. I'm actually going to give myself 25 you know, seconds. I'm going to jot down as many things as I can think about. But in every prayer, you'll find your particular phrase. We're going to do this with Nishmat Kol Chai, which is on page 145. Did you want to ask something? Well, I was going to ask, are you, is the thing that I'm smelling in the sidur that takes me back somewhere? something in my own life, or is it a grafted memory and I'm back in Egypt? No, never... not back in Egypt. What I mean is, just like you might say, when I, when I hear that bit of, bit of music, I know exactly how old I am, and I remember what I was doing, and I remember that group of friends. I want a similar thing where you look at a prayer, and you've figured out what this might mean to you. You've scratched at its surface. You've invested a little bit of time. Don't look at the whole book. Pick one. Forget five. Forget three. Pick one and make that yours for the moment. You can always add one later and say, you know what? Maybe it is going to be Michamocha. And I know that I have not been redeemed. I know that I am stuck in a place. And I, I need to think about how I'm stuck. And so now, whenever you see that and you say, Sfatayam, right, on the edges of the sea, and maybe for you, every time you see Svatayam, you're going to think edges of the sea. Maybe I'm on the other side of the sea and I haven't been redeemed yet. Or maybe I've come through and I never give myself enough credit for getting through that. With God's help, 
Again, back to that theology. Is it that God does it for you? Is it that God enables you to do it? Is it that God gives you what you need as you're going through it? So I want the, the memory element of it to be when you looked at that prayer and you made a personal connection to your life, personal meaning, that when you see those words, if you hear the Chazan sing them, he's singing one thing, but you're hearing something else. And it's, it's triggering in a way that we don't mind using that word. In an important way, in a beautiful way, in a meaningful way. Page 145 is Nishmat Kolchai. And I agree, it is on the earlier side of things. It's right before Shochein Ad. And I find myself sometimes hanging out with this one quite a lot. So for me, when I come into the synagogue on a Shabbat, I don't sit down until after Baruch I stand, and that goes back to a very important time in my life where I had a really bad back, and I just couldn't sit down and stand up. So I just stayed standing for as long as I could. And I, I've just kept the practice, even though my back's fine now. But I often stand away from my seat, off in the edge of the room, and I often get lost in this. And there's so many places that I can get lost in this. It's unbelievable. So first of all, let's just start to look at this, because this is one of those pages where we don't sing it. We just sort of pick it up later on. And yet in this, there is so much awesome stuff. It's filled with soul and spirit and everything physical. The soul of all that lives praises your name, Adonai, our God. The spirit of all flesh, that idea of both of these are coming together, right? That both halves of you are going to exalt God. From the very beginning to the very end of time, you are God. That alone is a line you could get lost in. I like to tell my kids that I teach, what makes God God is that God is unlike anything else because God was always there. Everything else has to come from somewhere. So God is simply the label we attach to that which from which all else flows, the source. That's me. That's one of the ways I look at this. So, yeah, from the beginning of time to the very end of time, because time doesn't mean anything to God. God stands outside of time. You could jump into this in so many ways. God redeems and liberates us, rescues and saves. But there's also a softness to it, shows us kindness and sustains us in every moment of anguish and distress. We have no sovereign but you. I'm not big on the, God, on the king language, but that's the beauty of this. You can pick a line, which means you get to skip over lines. It's poetry. God of all ages, God of all creatures, master of all generations, extolled in endless praise, who guides the world with love and its creatures with compassion. You could just dwell on the fact that the capacity of a world which could so easily tear itself to pieces is held up by love and compassion. And you might think, not at this time, except I have to look at the world and say the world is far, far better than it is worse. What we see on the news and what we focus on certainly can be tragic and ugly. But I have a deep optimism and an incredible positivity about 
the bigger picture. So that I think if I go up to 100 people, I think 99 of them are going to help me. They're going to be willing to help. Maybe more. Adonai neither slumbers nor sleeps, but wakes those who sleep, rouses those who slumber. There are times we are the sleepers and the slumberers, and we need a wake-up call. And maybe that's where you find yourself in this. Gives voice to those who cannot speak, frees those who are bound up, supports those who fall, straightens those who are bent over. And if you want to be on this, on, on, in, the, in the circle of this where you say, I'm not seeing that. I see plenty who stumble. I see plenty who extend a hand and they stay down. Then you could say, why do they do that? Am I not doing my part? Is this aspirational? Do I need to find all those times? Maybe I'm overly focused on those who aren't, and I have to rally more who can help those who aren't. It is to you alone whom we thank. The next one is where I totally get stuck. Were our mouths filled with song as the sea, our tongues to sing endlessly like countless waves, our lips to offer limitless praise like the sky, our eyes to shine like the sun and the moon, our arms to spread heavenward like eagles' wings, our feet as swift as deer, we would still be unable to fully express our gratitude to you. Were our mouths filled with song as the sea? It's like a musical. I feel a song coming on. And there is one. Yes. Okay, there's four. But it's 90 seconds. I can't help it. I'm going to give you my favorite one. This is where our mouths filled with, with sea. This is a completely secular Israeli, major star in Israel, old-timer, Shlomo Gronich. He is singing, if our mouths were filled with praise like the sea, it still wouldn't be enough. I listen to it, I can't get it out of my head. When I see the words come up in the book, I'm seeing the music. I'm seeing it rising like waves around me, the waves that are mentioned in here. And by the way, when we think about the, the physical, right, 
I just sort of took the page and I said, let me just highlight the things that are physical. And in the paragraph that we have, it's lips and eyes and arms and feet. And right after it, we end up with organs, nostrils, tongue, mouths, mouth, tongue, knee, body, heart, fiber of our being, every bone. It's as if to say, you are totally in this. The breath of every single one of you and every part of you maybe that jumps you back to the one. You are one with all creatures, but you are one, body and soul, and you are trying to find your way into these words. I'm going to give you a couple more, just because who doesn't like music? This one takes us also to Ilufinu. Excuse me, sir. Yeah. So all the music, please, please, that you play for us. Want some links to those? Uh, I would like, you know, annotations. So if I want to put them on my walking list. We can do that. For sure. Thank you. We'll send out a follow-up email, email with maybe some of our sources and with our musical things and maybe some of the other musical things that I kind of like that help us into the prayer. You can even add some page numbers. You mean a playlist? Correct. So this is also an ilufinu. There's the waves, by the way. Our mouth was filled with praise like the waves. but I need different things at different times. So I find this percolating in my head, which means I'm not always doing every word on the page. And I'm okay with that. Now you might find that there are days where you are going to go through all the words. I mean, one of the things that was on here that I really liked was uh, from Rabbi Diane Elliott. She says, so I have this map, the prayer book, and I might choose one day to just go to one little spot on the map and hang out there. And on other days, I want to go through the whole trajectory, usually depending on how much time I have. Both of them are okay. And going back to that Lawrence Kushner idea of prayer as script, sometimes the more familiar I get with the words, the more I can hear the music. Because I can 
rise above the words and not get stuck on them. And I say that as somebody who, remember from last week, I couldn't say the words of the evening service. I stumbled, I broke my teeth, and I simply sat there and I just said, okay, I'm going to get all those words. I'm not saying you have to get all those words. At that time, that's what I wanted. I wished, like I said, I wish I had invested that time in my connection to my heart. Because I think ultimately, the connection to the heart is the most powerful one. Do you want to hear another piece of music? Okay, why not? All right. I only need one. That's right. There we go. So this one starts with Nishmat Kolchai. And it, I don't have the piece from it. It then picks up with a line later on in it. This one is Joey Weisenberg and also many of the singers who are part of the Hadar community of New York. And it starts at the very beginning with Nishmat Kolchai. Nishmat idea of breath. That's what nishmat is, the breath. It could be a time where you say, I was racing to get here, I got here in time for this, and now I'm slowing my breath down. I'm taking a breath. I'm getting a breather, all of those metaphors. This can be done with just about anything. And yes, it's going to involve maybe stripping away some of the other pieces and I mentioned how, yes, I think pieces of this were put together to create this large book. But I think over time, pieces of prayers, they started out as small, and their authors layered more things onto them. And it's okay if we pull certain things out. It's like a song, right? We sometimes, we may not really know all of the song, but we know the chorus. I'll leave you with the final thought, which is, as we say in that first paragraph of the Ahavta, we say the Hayu Hadvarim Haele Asheranochi Metzavcha Hayom Al Levavecha. These words, which I give to you today, shall be on your heart. And the preposition is a little odd. These words shall be on your heart, not in your heart, but on your heart, which is strange. Why not take all of these words and put them within? Because that should be the goal. And so Menachem Mendel Morgenstern, from the end of the 1700s, gets his name the Kutzker Rebbe. And he has this beautiful inter interpretation of this. He says, look, the, the heart is a stony place. 
that is all too often sealed shut. You cannot necessarily succeed at placing things within it. But if you place them on the heart, there will be moments when it breaks open. And at that holy instance, they will fall in to be absorbed into the depths of a person's being. I know there will be times where our hearts maybe are closed because we haven't thought to open them up, because something is intruding in our thoughts and doesn't allow it, something is holding us back. But I think the more we try to place on our hearts, eventually they'll become part of you. So welcome to the journey. I'm on it. And I'd like to have fellow journeyers. And I'm always open for a conversation about what you discover. Thank you for joining me.